the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In last week's edition of Challenge 2.0, we began a conversation with two prominent atheist humanists. What exactly do those terms mean? Does their disbelief mean they don't share common values with those who do profess a religious belief? Is there room for collaborative action and connection in a society that increasingly offers neither? That then is the focus of this edition of Challenge 2.0, None of the Above, Part 2. And we're fortunate today to have uh, two guests with us that can give us a, a real perspective uh, on this particular issue or set of issues. We have Nick Fish, who's the president of American Atheists. Nick, thank you very much for joining us from Cranford, New Jersey, I understand. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. And locally from Edmonds, Washington, we have Judy Gladstone. Uh, Judy, thank you very much for joining us as well. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. So it might be helpful as we begin uh, just to get a sense of definition, and that is, how do you define atheism or secular humanism? What exactly do those terms mean to you? Yeah, I'm happy to start with the uh, the question on atheism, because I think it's uh, something that's often misunderstood by folks, um, that it's it's they think it's making a claim that we're saying that because uh, we don't believe in God that we're assume, asserting something else. The way that American atheists defines atheism is the lack of a belief in God. Um, now, this is not a theological definition. This is a practical definition that is the way that most people use these things. Uh, but I will say that there's this, uh, the, it, when you survey people in the United States, there's a difference between how people will say, will answer the question, do you believe in God? And about 10% of people will say no. But if you ask people, are they atheists? Only about four or 5% of people will say that they're atheists. So we wanna use as expansive a definition as possible while still acknowledging that people have rightly or wrongly some misgivings about the word atheist. And so one of the things that we work very hard to do is destigmatize that label, encourage people to use that label um, even if it is difficult sometimes, uh, we want people to use an accurate word and the word that, frankly, most people understand. Um, but that self-identity thing can be very complicated. It's not just like a, a dictionary. Uh, and so, you know, th there's a lot wrapped up in that word, and I wouldn't, won't pretend it's an easy thing for everybody. Uh, but, you know, that, that's the simple definition for us. It's the lack of a belief in God. That's it. Uh, nothing more complicated than that. And Judy, what's your understanding? And where do you fall on that? So secular humanistic Judaism, which is what I participate in for um, my community, is, is also rooted in non-theisms and not believing in God. But added to that is the belief that humans create the morals, humans create the path, and we rely on each other as uh, where we turn to for our help rather than to some theistic being. And in some respects, um, one of the founders of humanistic Judaism, Sherwin Wine, Rabbi Sherwin Wine, he coined a term called agnosticism. In other words, it doesn't matter. So, 
some people may participate in secular humanistic Judaism, and maybe they do have a belief in God, but it doesn't matter to them. There's no prayers to God. There's no turning to a deity for help or anything like that. It's really looking to human beings to define what that morality is and to define and, and, and provide look for assistance. So I think one of the other questions that frequently comes up when we're having this discussion about uh, those who believe in a supreme being, those who do not, is the public arena. Uh, you look back over history, a lot of people that came to this country came so came because of the desire to escape religious oppression. Uh, and yet there are a lot that get very uh, defensive when they are not able to portray their particular view as the dominant one. Uh, there have been uh, numerous cases in terms of uh, uh, public celebrations on public land and uh, perhaps popularly or unpopularly, uh, atheists and agnostics and secular humanists have been the ones that have said, this is not right to have that on public uh, land or public property. Uh, could you give us a little bit of nuance in terms of what your views are and why you think that's so important for us as a country? First of all, let me say that this whole um, movement talking about religious freedom has really co-opted the meaning of the constitution. And I think we need to be really clear about that because as this has evolved over the course of the past couple decades and really creating victims that um, were not intended to be the, the focus of, of um, the constitution, that it, it, it's, um, I, I really find it uncomfortable when people say my religious freedoms are being trampled on because they're distorting what the constitution is. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you think about religious freedom and the ability to, to practice whatever religion you want is a personal choice. When you put that into the public square, that's a whole different ball game. And so I don't like to talk about it in terms of religious freedom because it's been misused. And we need to be careful about perpetuating the use of that term um, in that context, because it's just not constitutionally founded. Some of the strongest allies for church-state separation are religious people. I mean, the, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious, the BJC is, is one of the greatest allies that we have in the fight for church-state separation. Americans United for Separation of Church and State started as a Protestant organization. Um, you know, and even Catholics, you know, didn't want state religions at the time because they knew that it meant that they wouldn't be able to practice Catholicism. And, you know, so there, there's just this whole host of religious beliefs and religious denominations that, are, that historically have been strong allies of church-state separation. And that's the thing that we have to be extremely clear on here is that this is not atheists versus religious people. This is atheists, agnostics, humanists, Jews, religious, religious minorities, Baptists, you know, Catholics, this whole host of groups that don't want government picking and choosing. It's this very small, narrow, extreme group that have this, you know, as Judy said, ahistoric, just distorted vision of what religious freedom means historically and what it should mean under the law that, that is out of step with so many of it, with the vast majority of Americans. And so we, we need to be clear about exactly who is on which side here and, and call out the threat. Then the threat is white Christian nationalism set against everybody else. Because when they talk about the United States being a Judeo-Christian uh, nation, 
the Judeo there is sort of a fig leaf. Let's, you know, that's number one. And if they say Christian, they don't mean the Christian Christianity of, you know, of Reverend William Barber from the Poor People's Project. They don't mean, you know, the Christianity of, of any black ministers. They don't mean, you know, Christianity that is, you know, the practice by Catholics for Choice or any other progressive religious group. They mean Mike Pence Christianity. You know, that's that's what we're talking about. And so they kind of they, they kind of hide the ball a little bit there when they're talking about things and don't really get into the specifics because <laughs> but hold them to that and ask them what they mean by a christian nation exactly which interpretation are we using here you both brought up some uh, i think very powerful examples uh, judy in terms of the lived experience of uh, jewish americans as we've seen just over the last couple of years uh, in terms of attacks at synagogues, just various examples of anti-Semitism. And Nick, you brought that up too. And I, I see the sign behind you that says the village atheist. And yet for many people, if they were to, to display that publicly at work or in their uh, place of residence, uh, they could suffer some uh, serious uh, discrimination. Could you speak to that a little bit? What the experience has been of people following uh, atheism or secular humanism as a guide to inform their life? Yeah. I mean, the religious discrimination in workplace is is overwhelmingly prevalent. I mean, our, our research found that something like almost 50 percent of non-religious women uh, in highly religious communities or in the South uh, hid their non-religious views um, from their workplace, uh, almost 50 percent, which was um, a bit higher than uh, than than general participants in our survey, which was closer to about a third of people hid that. Um, and again, in, in places where there's a perception of high religiosity or where they feel that they're going to pay a cost for that, um, they are more likely to hide who they are and that those hiding of that, of their views, not being able to live their, their whole selves at work um, and, and other parts of their lives has a profoundly negative effect on, on their mental health, on loneliness, on depression. They're far more likely to be depressed. Um, and so that's a real problem for us. Um, now they're, it's not just, they're not just imagining things. They're not just, you know, saying, well, nobody's going to, nobody's going to like me if I come out as an atheist. Um, it's true. I mean, people come up who are open and honest about what they believe and don't believe often face discrimination in the workplace. Uh, we, we receive complaints all the time from people who have faced adverse employment actions because they are atheists where, you know, they'll write to us and say, you know, my boss wants me to attend this prayer thing every single day and I'm an atheist and I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, and unfortunately, if they're in a state that doesn't have enhanced protections for um, religious discrimination in the workplace, if their employer employs fewer than 20 people, um, it's not illegal <laughs> to do these things. A lot of people don't, don't re recognize that some of these rules only apply to larger, uh, to, to larger organizations, to larger employers. Um, the all the federal workforce stuff uh, doesn't apply to a to a mom and pop shop with only five or six employees. They can discriminate on on the basis of religion, and people don't understand that. And so um, this happens all the time. Um, it's it's disgusting. It's it really hurts. Um, we're we're working to develop um, resources for employers that want to do better. We're certainly encouraging states to pass more comprehensive employment protections that that close those loopholes here in New Jersey, for example everybody is covered by those sorts of uh, those sorts of protections, regardless of how big your employer is. So, you know, it, it's it's unfortunately all too common. Um, and it's the sort of thing that is just, you know, invidious. It happens constantly. Um, and it and it happens, by the way, not just in the explicit, you can't work here if you're not a Christian or because you're an atheist. 
it also happens in in the things that people just sort of stumble into and don't re don't realize that they're doing um, of the, you know, we're going to all pray before we go out each day, or we're all going to do these, these little things that, that maybe the employer doesn't think is exclusionary, uh, but actually is. And so we encourage people to be thoughtful about um, how they're organizing their workforce, um, how they're talking with their employees, and, and make sure that they're not engaging in that sort of um, conduct that makes people feel like they're not full members of the community, full members of a workplace. You know, uh, it, it, it happens all too often. We have, unfortunately, countless issues facing us as a society. Uh, the environment, uh, human health, as we've seen during this pandemic, that as we tape this, we've still not moved out from, and uh, also the issue of human rights. I might ask you, which of those would be most fertile for cooperation, collaboration between uh, the atheist, secular humanist communities, and those that are affiliated with a religious organization? And... Can you maybe hold up some examples of where that's happened and what that looks like? So let me just start by saying, I think they're all really ripe for that collaboration because I think that um, whether you're coming at it from the perspective of theistically motivated or driven or humanistically motivated or driven, the goal is, is actually very much the same. And so um, I know as a community, we often will work with other organizations to towards those ends. And um, certainly I know there's um, like environmental groups that um, have done some work, both advocacy as well as on the ground type of work um, that have merged those together. Human rights, I think on a grand scale, um, have definitely, those communities have worked collaboratively because like I say, they have the same ends in mind, just what their drivers are, are different. Mm -hmm. Nick? And we've, we've, we've found that, you know, and what we tell to all the groups that work with us and the people who we work with is something is an atheist issue if you care about it because you're an atheist, right? So don't, don't get hung up on, you know, oh, how, how does this connect to church-state separation? If you care about transit, if you care about making sure that people who live in a transit desert have access to, you know, safe and reliable mass transit or people in a food desert have food security or people who are experiencing homelessness have a place, a place to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Those are now atheist issues because you care about them and you and you can organize around those and you should get out there and, and really grab those opportunities to find common ground with people who share your values on those issues. And as Judy said, there's tremendous opportunity for overlap here. And, and collaboration, as long as we're working in a framework that acknowledges, you know, religious pluralism and doesn't attach strings to some of our help, right? Um, one of the challenges that some of our groups report back to us is they'll go to a food bank wanting to volunteer. And, you know, as part of doing that, the, the food bank wants to preach at people before they get, get a meal. And that might seem like a small price to pay if you're hungry, but it's a price that people shouldn't have to pay. Um, if people are hungry, we should feed them. And so some of our groups have gone out and done their own, done their own work. So we have really great um, activist groups out there called like Atheists Helping the Homeless is one perfect example. Um, uh, the, the, and, and, and just, a, you know, they go out there and make sure that people are taken care of. And we don't preach to them about atheism. We just make sure that they have a, they got, they got a, a food in their a food in their belly and they've got a blanket if they need it, you know, and that's, that's what we do. So um, but on international issues, for example, this is one area where people who we agree with on almost nothing domestically, we can find common ground on because um, often the people who are most likely to be persecuting religious minorities or persecuting atheists are just as likely to be persecuting, you know, 
Christians or people who are of the wrong sect of whatever religion is dominant or persecuting people who change religions. And so somebody, you know, Sam Brownback, uh, former governor of, um, of Kansas, um, was the former ambassador at large for international religious freedom. When he was the governor and the senator, we did not agree on anything on religious freedom issues because as you know, Judy and I have discussed, you, some of those mixed definitions or incorrect definitions of religious freedom were, were abound. But on international issues, there was a plenty of opportunity to collaborate because these threats to the freedom of religion and belief abroad hit everybody. And, and he was able to see that and we were able to work with him in the State Department um, here within the atheist community, but also to make sure that, you know, everybody is protected. It's not just atheists that we care about, it's everybody's right to practice and change their faith um, abroad. Uh, and so, you know, we can find ways to work together. I mean, even in the current Senate, Tom Cotton, who we, again, don't share a whole lot of common views on, on religious freedom here in the United States, a tremendous ally for uh, working to end blasphemy laws abroad. So there, there's always, you can find common ground with just about anyone, regardless of how much you agree with them or disagree with them on any number of other issues. If there's one place where you can find that common ground, you should absolutely do it. And some of those collaborations provide the opportunity, perhaps a surprising opportunity for some, that although you may come at it from different directions, that you share some of those same essential human values. Absolutely. I think that's true, but I think it partly depends on the group. Yeah. Because there are groups who are not open right. to hearing what others' views are. And, and those are the groups that we're less apt to collaborate with because it's their way or the highway. Yeah. And so um, it requires some openness to hearing and understanding um, that does exist with a lot of groups, but not with all. Right. 100%. Absolutely agree with you there. It's one of the most productive things we do is building these coalitions to make sure that you know, especially in the arena of public policy, some of the most effective advocates pushing back against this stuff are vo voices of faith because it comes off as a little disingenuous if I'm sitting up there saying, do you see how this is undermining Christianity? I'm really concerned about, 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 about the sanctity of your religion, guys, come on. And so, and so having like a Baptist, you know, the Baptist Joint Committee or, you know, uh, Jews for Secular Democracy or, uh, you know, the Catholics for Choice getting up there and saying, do you see how, you know, this white Christian nationalism is really undercutting the message that we feel that is in the Bible? Um, that, that's really powerful, while at the same time having to sometimes, you know, uh, work through some, some talking points or some differences internally about like, don't, don't call them fake Christians, guys. Like they're very real Christians. They, you, you, they just disagree with each other, but they're very real Christians. I don't think we can honestly say for a minute that, you know, like Mike Pence is not sincere about his beliefs. <laughs> and so don't call them fake, um, you know, call them, you know, not in line with your interpretation of faith. That's fine. <laughs> don't call them fake right. though. <laughs> so we've encouraged groups to say, instead of saying faith leaders, we say faith and community leaders is one way of doing it. Um, because again, like a lot of, and, and Judy, I think probably knows this better, even better than I, that people are looking often for a community group. And one of the best protective factors that we found for people who were in highly religious communities that were otherwise highly likely to experience depression and loneliness and all that, one of the best protective factors was being a member of a local group. And so whether that's finding community in an atheist group or in a, you know, in, in a UU congregation that is accepting of non-religious people, which is the overwhelming majority of them, or a synagogue that is again welcoming if, if you're if you're you know of Jewish tradition, um, or you know some of the quote unquote atheist church groups. Um, so we encourage our groups to do a whole range of different programming. But there are groups like Sunday Assembly and Oasis that do 
you know, what would be sort of looked at as congregational humanism in a way. Um, and that they focus, you know, more strongly on the ritual and tradition. And, you know, they have like the sort of platform is what they call it instead of a sermon. So they do that. And it looks a lot like church, if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. But to some people in our community who are very suspect of that type of, um, of that type of event, they look at that and go, oh, that's, I, I still have a, I, I have a lot of concerns about that. I'm not keen on that. I want to just attend something that's more social, does some service, goes out there and does right. some ad, we do protests, we do all this, but we don't like get together once a week and have somebody talk at us. I'm just, I'm really uncomfortable about that, which is fair enough, you know. You know, it's sort of, even within our own community, we have that range of people that some are really comfortable and want the Sunday sermon type and the others are forget any sense of ritual whatsoever. But to me, the common thread in all this is that people need community and we forget sometimes that, that regardless of what the liturgy is, people go to church for the community. And so how you create that community is really what's important. And in fact, I'm willing to bet you that a good number of those people who belong to synagogues, certainly, and I'm not as familiar with churches, but definitely synagogues don't believe in God. Yeah. They don't believe in what they're saying, but they go anyway because they've got their community. And, um, And I think that what reinforces that thought is that the secular humanistic Jewish movement has been um, evolving since the early 60s and has not grown much because the people who have those beliefs that that's more important to them than their community are less than those who care more about the community that they're in than what their beliefs are and whether or not they align. So I just, I find that really fascinating for me. I'm not willing to do that, but there are many people who will go to synagogue and just sit there during the service and then they go and meet with their friends and that's really what it's all about. There was a really great poll that uh, surveyed, uh, I think think they surveyed reform and conservative Jews, but there's like, they surveyed Jewish Americans and they asked like, what are the essential elements of being Jewish? And a higher percentage of American Jews said that having a good sense of humor was an essential component of being Jewish than who said belief in God was an essential component of being Jewish. So, I mean, and it wasn't even, I don't think it was particularly close. (laughs) So I think that Judy's sense there is exactly right on (laughs) that. There's this huge number of people that really value the ceremony. They value the the historical connection, the, the cultural connection. They're not like, Oh, I'm doing this because God wants me to. They're doing this because it's a connection to something. It's, it's part of who it is, who they are as Jews. And that's important. And so, yeah, I, I love like that, that distinction. And I'm glad Judy said it as well is, something that I think people who are raised in a Christian tradition don't mm-hmm. fully get about the difference between what it was like growing up Jewish and growing up Christian. And I don't, you know, I don't have either experience, but that's what people who grew up Jewish tell me all the time is you're really projecting a lot of Christian stuff onto us as Jews. Please stop. <laughs> you know, so. Well, and you know, what's really <laughs> fascinates me is that, so my kids had secular humanistic bar and bat mitzvahs, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my families who all belong to these synagogues back East, they came little by little, started with my first kid. There were four there. Then the next kid, there were 12. And the last kid, there were 20 because they kept hearing what a great ceremony it was and how meaningful it was. And I was like, but do any of them, you know, come and join these communities? Nope. Nope. They stay where they're at and it's not meaningful, but they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly a sense of humor is much needed these days. (laughs) Whatever the derivation, you know, but uh, 
No, well, thank you both very much. You know, I was curious, and I know, Nick, when you and I spoke a little bit, uh, we talked a little bit about this issue of atheist, quote unquote, churches. But I thought there were other issues that I thought yeah. were more central, and I thought that would be more a curiosity. But uh, uh, it is interesting, and I think that speaks very much to the need to people ultimately to belong and have that affirmation of having other people accept them for who they are. Yeah. And we tell people, you know, there's no one right or wrong way to do atheism. American mm -hmm. Atheists obviously takes positions on certain things, but, you know, I, I'm the president of an organization that advocates on behalf of a community, not the Pope of Atheism. So I can't excommunicate you for doing your atheism differently than I would do it. Um, and so, you know, there are people for whom those communities really mean a great deal. I'm, I, I lean more toward the social side of things and wanting to do service and do activism and, and, you know, and that rather than the tradition and community, but in part because I wasn't raised with it. So it, it doesn't resonate with me in much in the same way, but for music, absolutely. Like I, the only, the only times, the most recent times I've attended church has been a church that had a really, uh, a really banging, uh, music <sighs> program. And so like that, you know, big choir, you know, had a string orchestra, <laughs> things like that. That's when I go to church is to hear that sort of stuff. And we've got some really great ones in the New York metro area that you can go to uh, that are, you know, denominational, but sort of <laughs> in air quotes, they're very ecumenical, I guess, is the, the to borrow a term. So they, they, they welcome everybody, but it's a lot of people attend because they've really got the, the music down pat. So <laughs> that's a nice, I'll do, I'll do that all day. That's great. Like I... <laughs> That's a very good additional point made there. And certainly we hope that uh, by your wonderful participation in this and sharing of your perspectives and wisdom on that, that people are a little bit more open. It may be in ways that they have not been in the past. So Nick and Judy, I thank you both very much for participating in this program. And we thank all of you out there for watching this episode of Challenge 2.0 and hope you join us again next week. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.